Hi, this is Mrs. Young, your Avon High School librarian, and welcome back to First Chapter Friday. We're going to continue celebrating Black History Month and by continuing to read A Dream of Freedom from Diane McWhorter. Um, this chapter that we're going to be reading is on Selma, and here we go. This took place in 1965, so we're going to talk a little bit about Selma. Cheyenne Webb was all of eight years old and wasn't sure what voting meant, but that hadn't stopped her from joining the movement to register black voters in her hometown of Selma, Alabama. On her way to school one day, she had noticed the crowd of civil rights workers in front of Brown Chapel, which to her amazement included white people. Even though her parents told her to stay out of that movement mess, Cheyenne soon became Martin Luther King Jr.'s smallest freedom fighter. Whenever he came to Selma, he would hold her on his lap at the pulpit and let her lead her favorite freedom song, Ain't, Nobody, Ain't Gonna Let Nobody Turn Me Around. Like Cheyenne, many of Selma's black adults did not understand what voting had to do with their lives. They didn't see that political power would enable them to have a say in who ran the town, the school board, and the police department. Voting was white folks' business, and the white folks had taken pains to keep it that way in the Black Belt, the band of cotton-growing country that cut across the South and was named for the darkness of its rich soil as opposed to the skin color of its vast Black majority. Because the white minority didn't want to be outnumbered at the polls, they had thought up ploys to keep Blacks from voting. Besides the long-standing poll tax, which meant you had to pay to vote, there were limited registration days, two Mondays a month in Selma, difficult forms, and good character requirements, which one candid Alabama politician admitted would exclude Jesus Christ if he were voting the wrong way. If all else failed, a citizenship test made registrants answer questions such as who is President Zachary Taylor's vice president and how many bubbles are there on a bar of soap. In Selma, the capital of Alabama's Black Belt, only 325 of the 15,000 voting age African Americans had been registered compared with 9,300 of the 14,000 eligible whites. Somehow, barely literate whites always passed the test, while black PhDs failed. Because the Civil Rights Act of 1964 had no strong provision to deal with voting discrimination, the movement now turned its focus on the ballot. The Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, which is also known as SNCC, had begun a big push in Selma following the Birmingham church bombing to try to channel grief and anger into constructive action. SNCC workers had been holding voter clinics and demonstrations at the courthouse that had run up against the usual white wall of resistance. In late 1964, Amelia Boynton, a leading civil rights activist in Selma, asked Martin Luther King, who had just won the Nobel Peace Prize, to come help. King's Southern Christian Leadership Conference, are called the SCLC, had had workers in and out of Selma over the past year, but its main recent entanglement had been a thankless campaign to desegregate St. Augustine, Florida, the country's oldest city. That protest had yielded no solid victory, despite the excitement of swim-ins at segregated pools and violent Klan marches in retaliation. Selma, Alabama seemed the ideal spot for a confrontation. It could be the next Birmingham. The town even had a villain to rival Birmingham's Bull Connor. Selma's sheriff, Jim Clark, was a beefy, crude, and violent racist with the scary equivalent to Connor's dogs and fire hoses, a posse on horseback. More than ever, SCLC was handling its Selma project by catering to the media, the approach scorned by SNCC. King's letter from a Selma jail had been written before he was arrested on February 1st, 1965, for leading 260 marchers to the courthouse to attempt to register. 
Four days later, the letter, this is Selma, Alabama. There are more Negroes in jail with me than there are on the voting rolls, appeared as a fundraising ad in the New York Times. But even if FCL, SCLC was a bit too strategic, Selma was also using King for his star quality and his access to national opinion makers. This campaign was a case of the Selma community leading King rather than vice versa. The depth of the commitment in Selma had been signaled by a demonstration on January 22nd. More than 100 school teachers marched to the courthouse to protest Sheriff Clark's arrest of Amelia Boynton at a demonstration two days earlier. Cheyenne Webb was amazed to see her teachers out there on the line. As a group, teachers had never been known as movement boosters, partly because they answered to a white school superintendent. On the same day King went to jail, Cheyenne and five other 500 other school children were arrested for marching. Can you imagine? Like, she, they said she was eight years old. She was arrested for marching for civil rights um, just because she was black. That's just beyond what I can imagine. The kids were carrying the day again, closing in on the nonviolent Gandhian role, goal of fill, filling the jails. They also provided the snapshots of suffering innocence that engaged the rest of the country. A group of U.S. congressmen came to Selma to see the indignities for themselves. Initially, President Lyndon B. Johnson had worried about trying to push through voting rights legislation so soon after the Civil Rights Act of 1964 passed. He was concerned that it would draw support away from his War on Poverty, a collection of programs designed to benefit African Americans on account of their economic condition rather than their skin color. Now Johnson reconsidered and announced his willingness to move in behalf of the efforts of our fellow Americans to register to vote in Alabama. SCLC grew more provocative. In front of the courthouse, one of King's lieutenants, the Reverend C.T. Vivian, taunted Sheriff Clark. You're racist the same way Hitler was a racist. Clark, the sheriff, smacked Vivian in the mouth so hard that he broke his finger. Two days later, on February 18th, Vivian went a few miles north to the town of Marion, Alabama, and held a nighttime march, a dangerous tactic given the chaos factor of darkness. Sure enough, the streetlights went dark after Vivian's rally and pandemonium set in. State troopers began hitting a black woman. Her 26-year-old son, a local movement volunteer named Jimmy Lee Jackson, rushed over to protect her. A trooper shot him in the stomach. On February 26th, Jackson died. He was the first martyr to voting rights, but not the last. The Reverend James Bevel, SCLC's rabble-rousing architect of the Children's Miracle in Birmingham, proposed a march to the state capital of Montgomery. He wanted to lay the blame for Jimmy Lee Jackson's death on Governor George Wallace. SCLC's sensational approach was getting a decidedly mixed reaction from the SNCC workers who had started the Selma voter campaign. SNCC's chairman, John Lewis, and you re might remember that John Lewis died recently, um, and he was a uh, state, uh, excuse me, a, a congressman from the Atlanta, Georgia area. But back then, he was um, the SNCC's chairman. Um, so he had been, his head had been bashed in four years earlier during the Freedom Rides, and he was worried about exposing the community to more fatal violence. King himself was under such constant death threats that he dealt with the pressure by making light of it. We were lucky in Birmingham. All of us got out of uh, alive, he half-joked to his colleagues, but Selma might be different. Many in SNCC decided to boycott SCLC's Selma to Montgomery March, which was scheduled for Sunday, March 7, 1965. John Lewis faced a very dark and lonely hour. 
He finally decided that he had to break with his SNCC colleagues and march. He couldn't abandon the people of Selma who had given him their trust. So we here we have a division between Martin Luther King's group and um, the SNCC group, which was all about nonviolence. And so there was a, a little bit of a discussion there. People not sure which way to go with this. And so we come to the part called Bloody Sunday. It was a beautiful Sunday afternoon, and Lewis found himself at the head of a line of 600 marchers, sharing the leadership duties with SCLC's Reverend Hosea Williams, um, and Dr. King was in Atlanta at the time. Right up there in front with them was Cheyenne Webb. A lot of people had told the girl she was too small, but she was so spirited up that she wasn't afraid. Singing freedom songs, the marchers walked east out of Selma, crossing the Alabama River on the Edmund Pettus Bridge. At the highest point of the bridge, they looked down to the other side upon what Lewis described as a sea of blue, uniformed state troopers with tear gas masks dangling from their belts. Sheriff Clark's posse was among them, horses and all. The major in command of the state troopers ordered the marchers to halt and go home. He gave them two minutes. Cheyenne started to cry and then obeyed the minister's orders to kneel down and pray. The major issued the call, troopers advance. First came a line of uniformed cops striding into the front row of marchers. John Lewis was eyeball to eyeball with one of the troopers, who then started clubbing him in the head. As Lewis buckled from a skull fracture, SCLC's Hosea Williams turned and ran. Canisters of tear gas were being hurled at the marchers, spewing a yellow fog. Then came the horses. Cheyenne ran as fast as she could. The horses knocked some people off the bridge and down the riverbank. Hosea Williams picked Cheyenne up. She told him to put her down because he was not running fast enough. The horses galloped up after the fleeing marchers, their riders clubbing stragglers. Officers on foot shocked the demonstrators with cattle prods. Simply unable to believe the behavior of the white folks, Amelia Boynton, the godmother of the Selma campaign, turned to another woman and asked, what do these people mean? Then she was knocked unconscious by a trooper's billy club. Bloody Sunday did not come to an end until Sheriff Clark's horses had chased the demonstrators all the way back to the steps of Brown Chapel. Cameras from the major television networks filmed the action. That night, ABC broke into its regular programming to air the blood-chilling news footage out of Selma. The ABC movie being interrupted was Judgment at Nuremberg about Nazi Germany's crimes against humanity. At the ur urging of Dr. King, clergy and other interested citizens flocked to Selma from around the country. On Tuesday, March 9th, King led 2,000 people over the Edmund Pettus Bridge. But because federal judge Frank Johnson had ordered that no march take place until he ruled on a related matter, King obeyed the troopers' orders to stop. The marchers turned around and headed back to the church. SNCC workers, the resentment of SCLC breaking the surface, mockingly saying, ain't going to let nobody turn me around. The anticlimactic sequel to Bloody Sunday became known as Turnaround Tuesday. Still, that Tuesday ended in bloodshed as well. In the evening, a young white Unitarian minister from Boston named James Reeb left a black cafe with two other visiting white clergymen. A white local whacked him upside the head. After two days in a coma, Reeb died. As the country convulsed in protest over Reeb's death, some SNCC leaders compared that sorrowful, sorrowful reaction to the relative silence that had greeted the murder of the young black man, Jimmy Lee Jackson. They wondered if the movement was accommodating the racism of a country that paid no attention to their struggle until it took the life of a white person. 
On Monday, March 15th, President Johnson went on national television and topped John F. Kennedy's Modern Emancipation Proclamation of 1963. It is wrong, deadly wrong, to deny any of your fellow Americans the right to vote in this country, Johnson said. With this hangdog glare, the president announced that he was sending voting rights legislation to Congress. He compared Selma to other landmarks of American democracy, such as Lexington, Concord, and Appomattox, where history and fate meet at a single time in a single place to shape a turning point in man's unending search for freedom. In one of the most electric moments of his presidency, Johnson declared, drawing in his chin for emphasis, and we shall overcome. The SCLC ministers watching the address on TV that night began to cheer. C.T. Vivian stole a look at King and noticed a tear running down his cheek. So, Judge Johnson lifted his ban on the Selma to Montgomery march. Governor Wallace claimed that he couldn't protect the communist-trained troublemakers streaming into Alabama by the thousands. President Johnson federalized the Alabama National Guard and sent 2,000 additional soldiers to protect citizens exercising a constitutional right from their fellow Americans. On Sunday, March 21st, 4,000 people set out from Selma and headed east down the Jefferson Davis Highway on the 54-mile five-day walk to Montgomery. The front of the march was a picture of melting pot harmony. King, his fellow black Nobel Peace Prize winner, Ralph Bunch, a rabbi, a priest, some nuns, a young white woman, and a white amputee on crutches, whom white Alabamians along the route ridiculed by chanting, left, left, left. Selma had become a magnet for celebrities, including actors Marlon Brando and Paul Newman. A number of the marchers just put in appearances on the route, driving off at night to a hotel bed. A core group of 300 pitched tents in the fields, ate meals prepared back in Selma, and slept under the vigil of the U.S. military. The scene of Army helicopters hovering over the nonviolent campsite was a mixed message of America's great strengths, democracy with the military might to back it up. For the first three days, King was there nearly every step of the way, even on Tuesday when the marchers walked 11 miles in the rain and bedded down in mud. He ducked out to Cleveland for a fundraising speech on Wednesday. On Thursday, March 25th, King was back in the lead, shaking off the reports of yet another plot against his life. More than 25,000 Americans, a thoroughly integrated crowd, rolled into the capital of Alabama that afternoon. Taking a seat of honor on the speaker's platform near the State House was Rosa Parks. One could see King's first church, Dexter Avenue Baptist, close by. From the podium, King recalled the distance they had traveled since their journey had begun with a bus boycott 10 long years before. He quoted Mother Pollard, the ancient boycotter, who had said, My feet is tired, but my soul is rested. There would be another season of suffering, King predicted, but he left his audience with the sense that he himself was rested on what would be the last major triumph of his career. How long will it take to get freedom, King asked the crowd. Not long, he said, and summoned his genius at joining hope with reality, because the arc of the moral universe is long, but it bends toward justice. For her ninth birthday, Cheyenne Webb asked her parents for a special present. She wanted them to become registered voters. They took Cheyenne with them on their first trip to the polls. Her excitement turned to surprise when she saw how simple the act of voting was. The only thing to it was marking a ballot with a check mark. All that struggling and suffering for something so basic to democracy and so fundamental to a human being. I hope you enjoyed listening um, to information about Selma, Alabama in the 1960s. And this is the end of First Chapter Friday for this week. And thank you so much for listening. We'll see you next time.